Sound design. When you do get complaints, it's like, oh, it was too loud. Then a question is, well, what was too loud? Because sometimes the people just don't like the music. Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively and today I'm joined by the man behind the mixer teaching church audio artistry, Chris Huff. Chris, thanks for joining me on Sound Design Live. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This has been great. What is your favorite song to mix when it comes to um, House of Worship? church services which is kind of your specialty it really depends on like what i'm into but honestly it's any song where the band is just really tight like right now we just did this past weekend only king forever by elevation It's really like just that perfect combination of the band knowing a song, feeling the song. It's a great song to mix. I mean, and we've got a band that's um, a drummer with, we usually have him mic'd with about eight mics, a lead electric, a rhythm electric, acoustic, keyboards, piano, bass, a couple singers and a lead singer. Yeah, so it's fun to do the big songs. How did you get your first job in audio, your first paying gig? Kind of the way I started, I think anybody who starts small and, you know, like working in a church is you get a friend of a friend who says, hey, I've got an an event going on. Can you do this for me? I did have a few gigs where it's like you do a wedding at the church and you get paid for it. But as far as my first paid event, actually a huge men's acapella group of about 50 or 60 guys. Which sounds great. Sure. Until you realize you're mixing on like one of those little, call them bricks, like the, the powered mixers that are just like a box and it's like from 1980. Oh, wow. And sure. I had to sit behind the risers that they were standing on and kind of guess at, at what I needed to do the whole time. <laughs> and, and they actually kept using me for about two years, uh, about four times a year. And I finally convinced them, look, you guys got to get a, f- a, a real audio system, get sure. enough cable to, to be out in the audience. And then I said, if you guys know somebody who's really into your style of music and travels with you, you know, that's really, you know, the key person you need to, to find. So in a way, I talked myself out of that job. Okay. okay. But I, I was okay with that. Oh, so they did find someone to replace you. Yes, they did. It was your relationships with people at the church you were at at the time that were your inroads to audio and to working on events. Yes, and, and that's really it, is just knowing people. Because, I mean, the downside is the quality of the gigs that you get in in the beginning. Um, but the upside is that you kind of get around pretty quick. Um, when, once you do a good couple of gigs, then people are likely to come up and say, Hey, I've got this going on. Can you do this for me? Um uh, 
I've found, though, in live audio, there's a big difference between the guys that have their own gear and the guys that don't. In okay. my case, I don't because, I, I mean, I primarily do church installation stuff. But at the same time, so many of the, these bands have their own gear. They just need somebody who knows how to use it. Looking back on your career so far, what's one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? I was this close to giving up on the BehindTheMixer.com website and everything I was doing there. It was oh, wow. it was several years ago. I had, I think I got to the point where I was I was trying to do too much and write too often. And I, I was kind of getting burned out and maybe I, I put some unfair expectations of my, on myself, but I, I was looking for more people to be participating, more people to be commenting on articles. Um, I don't think I realized at the time that sort of as the society has changed, people are less likely to comment on articles and more likely to go to like a Facebook group for a full discussion. And so I think I was basing some of the engagement of the website based on comments. And I just said, okay, look, I've got to decide, am I really reaching all the people I want to reach? Because I want to reach everybody. And I thought, I'm going to take about one to two weeks, not do anything. I did really nothing and then said, okay, now I'm going to do a push of scheduling articles on a regular basis and that I could, I could meet that writing, that, that timing. Mm -hmm. um, also that I would put out a newsletter on a, on a more regular basis than I have. I felt like also like my website traffic had plateaued after about two months of just pulling back and then re-engaging. It took off like I, <laughs> I would never have expected. And now here it is today with three guides. I mean, our Facebook group has almost 10,000 people over 30,000 on my newsletter list. And then I'm freelance mm -hmm. writing for uh, numerous uh, of the trade publications and they've flown me out to, to do conferences just this past, uh, I think it was January. Yeah, it was January. Uh, Sennheiser sent me an email and said, look, you're in the church audio community. Can you grab a couple people and we want to fly you out to LA just for a little roundtable discussion focus group for a day? We'll pay Interesting. for it and we'll pay for everything. Mm -hmm. And you know, and that was this year, but it was several years ago when I was ready to, to give up. But oh, wow. Yeah, sometimes it's it's just looking at your situation. What's what's realistic? Where do I want to be? And then sometimes you're just blessed and things open up, and and that's where I am now. Nice. So you had to take a step back to kind of see that there was a way forward, maybe with just a little bit different schedule, some different commitments, different goals. Yes. Yes. I wanted to start talking about this article that is is one of the most read or one of the most shared on your site. And, and it's pretty comprehensive. It's called How to Find the Perfect Volume. I think people should definitely read this. Um, it's really interesting, but I was wondering if maybe you could just, first of all, walk us through the process for people who may be somehow listening to this um, while they're driving or something like that and they can't just flip over to the article. So if you could walk us through it and then maybe I can ask you about some of the points along the way. There was probably a question a lot where people say, how loud should my whatever be? Oh, they do that. It's all the time. It's, you know, this is my uh, SPL level. What do you guys run? And I'm like, well, okay, um, what size is your room? What type of music do you play? You know, what are all these different conditions? And so there, there's no way to compare it. And I, I just got, t I got tired of seeing that question asked over and over and over because it truly is an apples to oranges comparison. And 
And that's what spawned it. And I wanted to say, look, the perfect volume, it's like picking the perfect temperature. If you're married, you can have that debate forever, you know, with a thermostat. And eventually you, you compromise on something. And that's what volume is. And for picking that perfect volume for a room, it's about finding the right volume for the majority of people. Not everybody, because that's impossible. But the majority of people, and you find that largely by watching their reactions and their engagement with the event in light of your volume levels. For example, and, I, and I've mixed it, uh, all kinds of churches, sometimes it's just guest mixing in for something or, or just other events. And I know, okay, at this place, they like their music somber and soft and quiet. And if I mix it loud, then they'll feel uncomfortable. They won't sing along. They won't be involved. They're, what was the big EDM concert recently, like the Tomorrowland? You know, that's you're, you're talking okay. yeah. 100,000 people probably at that concert. And if you don't play that loud enough, you know, people are just going to stand there. They're not going to be in the music, into the music because that energy comes with that volume. And so that, that's what the trick to it a lot of times is looking at the audience's behavior and adjusting accordingly, eventually you'll find the right range. I mean, I know what it is for us, and it's about an eight decibel range between you know the loudest and the softest. I'll, I keep an SPL meter just to monitor. Like every once in a while, if I, if I think I'm mixing a song a little on the loud side, I'll check to see what the number is. I, I won't adjust my volume, but if later somebody says to me, Hey, it was a little loud. Then I'll, I'll know. Okay, I happened to run it a little loud during that time. Not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but when you do get complaints, it's like, oh, it was too loud. Then a the question is, well, what was too loud? Because sometimes the people just don't like the music, and no matter, okay. what, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that, that's kind of the downside to mixing in churches with a very wide uh, demographic of just age population. Is some people are not are just not into the music. Okay. You know, and so they, they sit through the music, they wait for the, the sermon, they listen to the sermon, and they leave. So they miss out on the last song because that's not for them. And they'll be the same people that are likely to complain about the music volume, but it's not the volume, it's just that they just don't like the style. For example, I was having this conversation with my, my pastor a couple of years ago. I just pulled him aside. I said, I just love to talk audio with you and get your perspective on a few things. And one of them was, was about volume. And he said, you know what? It's funny. He said, I remember a man who was probably in his 50s. He had to park his car for him. And he said he's got this country music on the radio in this guy's truck. And the guy had it cranked. But whenever he stepped into the church, he wanted it very soft and quiet. Interesting. He said, so we all we all bring our, our, our own biases into these different venues wherever they are. And it's just trying to meet meet that. The word that you use that I like is engagement, because I feel like that could apply to any kind of event. And then I guess the trick is knowing your audience, right? Because that engagement might be singing, that engagement might be clapping, uh, that engagement might be laughing if it's comedy, right? And, um, and so knowing your audience and knowing what that engagement looks like then can help you judge the volume level. So I just thought I would share with you that when I was working on the circus, we 
could tell if it was too loud if kids were covering their ears, they're the most sensitive in the crowd. And so one of the things I was told to do was look around the arena and just check every once in a while to see if especially kids were engaged and make sure they weren't like covering their ears or anything. And a couple of times I did and I had to like back it off and I was like, oh wow, it really works. <laughs> Situations where someone asks you to make it too loud. So there's a section where you talk about handling requests for higher higher level, um, people asking you to make it louder when your common sense tells you that louder is not gonna make it better and it could actually damage people's hearing. So could you talk about how you handle that situation and maybe give us some tips? It actually, it's funny, I just see a comment by Jeff that's popped out mentioning good EQ and, and making up for, for volume in a way. And that, that's a very good point. Sometimes when people want it louder, it just means there's something in particular they can't hear. You know, maybe they can't hear a lead vocal loud enough so they're unable to follow along with the song so they say they want it louder. The audience does not think like us. We kind of have to boil things down to what is it, not that they're asking, but what is it they're really asking? Now, if somebody just says, look, hey, can you make it louder? Usually I know what range is good and you know, maybe I might go, you know what, I can probably push it a little louder and I've, I've got some wiggle room there. Because I don't always want to be blasting it right at that upper limit. I just, again, part of it's just the feel of the room. An example of the feel of the room, if there's a natural disaster or, I mean, I'm like Katrina, when that came through with the hurricanes, or if there's something else, I mean, I can think of what happened recently over in the, on the East Coast, and that everybody's affected. I think there's so much on their mind, they're not in the mood to um, be in a celebratory mood. They just kind of okay. want things a little softer, and sometimes... In, in my volume, so I won't run things as loud because I know a little softer is better for them because you're mixing for that moment, it, you know, which is unlike studio recording completely. If somebody says it's it's too loud, or I mean, if it, it's not loud enough, and I know that I, it's not right for me to push it any louder, then I'm just going to tell them, thank you, I appreciate it, I'll take that under consideration. And most of the times, they're just going to be, they'll be happy enough to, at, at that and they'll walk away and at that point I don't have to do anything. Sometimes we may have need to interpret people's requests as an EQ change or interpret people's requests as more voice or less voice or you know it could be a mixed decision. Um, so yeah I guess it really depends on who the request is coming from. Just a real basic question here. Why might my wireless microphone stop working tomorrow? Well yeah that's a good question. Uh, and I don't think people are going to like the answer to this one. And that is just, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. Um, here in the United States, the Federal Communications Commission recently auctioned off space in the 600 megahertz band. Now, when they did this a couple of years in the 700 megahertz band, they said, okay, this auction space won't be used for a couple of years. So everybody has time to vacate those frequencies by new wireless microphones. This time they didn't do it that way. They had the auction and they said, hey, wireless microphone users, you have until 2020, which seems like plenty of time. Asterix, by the way, those that have purchased the auction space can start using it at any time. So, oh, man. Exactly. So, for example, um, uh, T-Mobile is rolling out their... Uh, they're new. I think it's, it's the 5G or 50G or whatever. I don't know how. 50 million Gs. Exactly. I don't know how long. <laughs> yeah. That's an expensive one. Uh, and that's, that's right in that 600 megahertz band. 
So there are people who have already had to go out and replace their wireless microphones because when they turn them on, they either get interference or, you know, we're talking sometimes with the digital stuff, it just doesn't work at all. Yeah, and so that's where it's a matter of saying, look, you have until 2020, but if you turn it on tomorrow, some company might have decided, oh, we're going to start using that as our new auction space that we've purchased. Before we all start complaining about that, yeah, the auction space was primarily for uh, wireless internet. So as we complain on our cell phones about having to do this, that's the same cell phones that's getting the benefit of the the new wireless internet. (laughs) (laughs) The next topic that I had for you was this other article that you wrote about disasters. The this thing that you wrote, I thought is is a great thing that I could just maybe like write on a card or like put on top of the console in case like my brain explodes and I'm like, what do I do? And the 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 thing to write is relax, look around, plan, and execute. Okay, so pretty simple, and the article is good, and we can talk about that if you want. But first of all, I was just curious if there was an incident that pre- that preceded this, and you're like oh no, I need to write about this. People don't know how to handle this. Or maybe were you getting a lot of questions about this? I Was there uh, an incident? I would have to say every single one. And, that, <laughs> <laughs> and that's especially as a new guy. Oh my gosh, I remember being a, a rookie and you know, something goes wrong and then I'm just freaking out. I'm, I'm looking all over for like, okay, what light isn't on and should be on or what fader's up and should be down or, or you know, anything. But I'm, what I'm not doing is really looking at everything that's going on, taking it in, and then making a logical decision after that of, of to execute a plan. Right, because when you're in the flight, fight or flight mode, like your whole creativity shuts down. Right, you just turn into an animal. And so, and that's the benefit of of relaxing. I mean, as soon as you relax, now at first, you know, the first time I think you, you do that, you're like, okay, it's hard to relax because everybody's looking at me. And but after a while, you know, that relaxed time is could be two seconds where you just take a little breath then you look around and you say okay um what's going on on stage what do my what's my wireless rack look like you know is, is anything on or off or flashing colors you know what's what's the signal path on my mixer for that channel does everything here look good and then by doing that you can j- easily eliminate problem areas and narrow down what's probably a problem, and then from there saying, okay, this is what I need to do, and then I do it. Now, the longer that you've been doing audio production, you know, the faster that you can do this, just because you know the equipment. Now, the nice thing about that relax, look around method is that if plan A doesn't work, you're not scrambling around to try to f- you know, figure something else out because you've already looked around and just by looking around and knowing what's going on, you're able to say, okay, I can eliminate this option because this didn't work. Now let me go to this other possibility. And if that doesn't work now, overall, I will add that we're trying to either fix or minimize whatever's happening. You know, so for example, I had a pastor's wireless uh, headset start giving me all this, this nasty staticky noise because what had happened is it had come loose from the belt pack and so what do you do there and at first i'm looking around the console trying to figure out is this interference that we're getting and i realize okay it's not interference i look down at 
my my meters for my fader, and I just see them every once in a while just go all the way up and all the way down. So that tells me, okay, this is coming from the source, in which I realize, okay, it's probably his battery pack, and in that connection, what what's the easiest way to fix this? Well, it's not to go out and say, here, let me have that and try to fix it. It's to have somebody, in this case my stage manager, run out with another microphone, and as he takes the other microphone, I mute the bad one, turn on the good one, and I'm set to go. Now, what I did in that instance, while I'm having that stage manager grab that microphone, I'm duplicating his channel on the mixer, which is the advantage of the digital mixer. So when he jumps over, my gains are set, my EQ is the same, and he just goes on. And and people who are watching this aren't really affected that much once he gets back in. They're, they're able to forget that it happened. I think okay. we in production... You know, we, we just hyper focus on the problems that we had and we have to be realistic going, <clears throat> okay, if this, you know, took less than 30 seconds, 15 seconds to fix, the audience is not going to remember this. Nick is watching and he says, uh, subs on an ox, yes or no? I will say as long as you have somebody who knows how to mix subs, then go for it. Otherwise, you know, cause if you're talking, if you're the only one and you know how to do it, go for it. If you've got three different people that are mixing and you know two of them can't mix subs for anything, and they're likely to, let's just say, mix it way too loud because they're mixing personal preference. Well, you don't want to give them that control. It would be better to have your subs through a crossover and everything mm. it, you know, fixed in, in some way. So can you do sure. it through an aux? Sure, it's just a matter of is it good for everybody. Ching is watching, and they said... Do you do sound measurements with any kind of tools for a reference? Oh, sure. Um, I guess a couple different ways I can go with that. One is that if I'm mixing in a new room um, and I just want to know what the overall evenness of the volumes are in the room, I'll take a just a, a hand SPL meter and walk the room at about, I don't know, 20 feet apart. And just kind of imagine you're just putting a, a grid over the whole room and marking those places, and I'll just go through and say, okay, how's the sound volume in this spot? And as long as it's consistent or I'm within, you know, four, maybe five decibels, then I know I've got good even coverage across the room. Okay, and you're using some kind of signal generator with that? Um, no, at that point, I'm, I will just put in music that I know, okay. you know that, that's fairly consistent volume-wise. I mean, there's so much that's you know, modern music is, is compressed when it's mastered anyway. So, you know, we're not getting a whole lot of, of range in that, but you just, you know, the music, and you know what to expect. So that's, that's what I'll do for an SPL meter, uh, for a room just to get an idea of, okay, am I, am I going to have any problem areas? As the, the other question they might be asking is what about tuning a room? I'll say number one, if you can afford it, have somebody come in and do it for you who's a professional and has all the equipment. If I'm going in and, um, Mixing a room, I had to do a a huge conference at a hotel, and it was a perfectly square room. I mean, it was a huge room, but it was perfectly square, and so I had a standing wave every time the drummer would hit the tom. Nice. Um, you know what? I could have gone through the whole room and you know, used a noise generator and, and worked my whole house EQ. I find for situations like that where it's just a one-off, you're going to be in the room and then out, I will just go through and have the band play. I'll have, I'll have my, my speakers speak into their microphones, and I'll listen to the frequencies and l- listen for feedback areas. 
I'll notch those out in the house EQ, a problem area like a standing wave. And for me, that's about it. If I'm in an installed situation, then I would just as soon hire somebody who's going to come in and set that for me. Um, but in that case, they're, they're tuning the system. Elmer wrote in um, earlier, I think yesterday, and wrote, which instrument does he find to EQ the easiest, and which instrument is the most difficult? I would say the easiest for me is probably the acoustic guitar, only because I've I've been doing that the longest. One tip I, I will give on that is that whenever you've got an acoustic player who's playing through any sort of effects board, because sometimes acoustic players, I mean, electric players will switch between acoustics and they'll still run some patches through to get that pristine acoustic sound. I've had them grab their gear, on like on an off night, go out in the middle of the venue, play, and listen to what they're hearing in the house. Because what they hear in their floor monitor or their in-ears isn't always the same as what comes through the house. And, you know, after... 20 minutes, half hour, they've got a sound that sounds so much better than what they thought they were giving me. Because they're, oh, because they're making adjustments to their own instrument. Got it. Right, to their, got to their it. pedal or like, um, if you ever, like the LR Bags Paraacoustic DI, um, which yep. I actually have one myself around here somewhere. Um, that's a great one just to tune in to get that great sound from your guitar because you want that sound quality as good as you can get as early on in the signal as you can, and that's, you know, where, where else is better. And that way, if I'm, especially if you're mixing on an analog board, now since you're getting their best, you have more room to work with. Yeah, I like that a lot. You're really making it a collaboration. So you talk to the guy and like, hey, I really like mixing acoustic guitar. Could you help me make like a really great acoustic guitar sound in this room? Like, of course they want to do that, maybe. Now I have to answer the hardest. For me, it's keys, and I find that it's because... Keyboards are used in so many ways. Oh, they change. You're talking about like changing patches between songs. They're changing patches and and voices. And sometimes I'm like, there's low end in there that that the drums are already covering it. The the bass is already covering. Sometimes I have to do a lot of EQ on that. And also it's, it's understanding exactly how that keyboard is used in the song. And that's where it's, I mean, it's helpful to listen to the recordings of, of the originals to understand, okay, where should I, where should I, where should that sit in my mix? Mm-hmm. But I mean, for me, keyboards are usually my a tough area for me. I will add that there's the new pedal boards. So your electric guitarist has this pedal board. He can look up in their database a song, and it will pull up all the pedal effects. No, I've not heard of this. Ching says line six. Yeah. Okay. Thank you then. Now my electric guitarist, when he comes in, he hasn't spent half his week trying to find the right pedal effects to use. He's been able to find it in 10 minutes because the the other nice thing about that that software that they have is if it's not already listed, then you can add it yourself. Darren asked, how long did it take you to write the ebook? But I think you have more than one, don't you? Right. I've got three. There's um, the one Brian Gowing and I co-wrote, which is Equipping Your Church for Audio, and that's... We take people through the whole process that we use whenever we go into a church to spec out new s- systems. Um, okay. So when they go through that, they've got everything they need. Uh, there's audio essentials for mixing vocals because that's always 
really just the hardest thing to do for a lot of people. Um, but the, the main one I think that he's talking about is audio essentials for church sound. And, okay. that, and that's my, my complete, I hate to say A to Z because that A to Z is, is not the order. It's just the logical order of the moment you walk into the door to the moment you leave, but it actually extends beyond that into the days before and the days after. But I cover all of the non-technical things that you have to do and everything from, from commu- inter- communications with the band to finding out things about song schedules, uh, dealing with difficult people, all of that really hard extroverted stuff that most of us introverts don't like to do. But it really does make it a difference in creating a better quality audio production. I think overall it was probably maybe a nine-month process, and that was maybe the first four months of just trying to go at a reasonable pace of, you know, work on this here a little bit, here a little bit there. And then I just decided, okay, I'm now going to spend every free moment of my time devoted to writing this and and getting this the best I, I, I can get for for everybody to get everything out there that a new person needs to know. If anybody has a large project that they want to undertake, you know, the first thing I would do is, is set yourself a, a deadline, a realistic deadline, because that will help you get started. But then also say, how much time can I really devote to this and how much am I taking away from something else? Yeah, if you're saying yes to something, especially something new, you're saying no to something else. All right, Chris, um, Jeff asked, any tips for mixing backing tracks and live vocals? Oh, he said soundtrack and vocals, backing track and vocals. Okay. Like sometimes we'll use some loops on some of the work that we do just because the band can't produce those sounds and they're just enough to add to fill out sounds. In that case, what I'll do is with those tracks, it's volume and EQ are the two big things because if if there's a lot in those tracks and I don't need all of it, I'll just kind of focus in on those frequencies that I need. Maybe it's mid-range, maybe it's just highs. Because unfortunately, sometimes with these these tracks, what you'll get is like these ocean swells of of sound that when you've got drums and bass and all this other stuff and, and keyboards, you're going to cover up. When you don't want to put that low end in the mix as well, so I'll just you know, roll all that off and I'll focus on the areas uh, in the tracks that is really bringing out what I want from those tracks. So Chris, um, where is the best place for people to follow your work? Uh, the best thing people can do is go to behindthemixer.com and that's going to have all the articles. That's going to have links to all the guides. If they want to stay up on everything that's going on, new articles, anything else that I've got going on, I'll also uh, mention new gear whenever new gear comes out. Um, and I don't mention just Everything I'll pick out things that I think are, are really relevant and useful. Drop your email in in the box off to the uh, right hand side of the screen, and then you'll get um, not only notifications of whenever I've got these new articles coming out, but you'll also get uh, in that case my uh, sound check checklist, which will get you your sound checks in a much smoother, dare I say, stress free way than maybe that you're doing those now. <laughs> uh, and then also a big thing is that will get you a link to access my uh, private Facebook group. And we've got so many thousands of guys on there. Um, Nathan's even on here. It's people helping people. And sometimes somebody just needs to, to vent. And you know we allow that and, and support each other. So, yeah, definitely go to BehindTheMixer.com. Uh, 
check out what I've got and and, and uh, drop your email in and I'll I'll connect you in all sorts of ways with even with other audio texts. Sound design. Thank you to J. Anthony Allen for the music in today's episode. If you want to find more of his music, you can go to janthonyallen.com. That's the letter J, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, A-L-L-E-N.com. <laughs>